0: What's up, beardos? You're listening to episode 108 of the Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to don't be a jerk.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Paul
0: and I'm Andy
1: and we are the bearded vegans a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan
0: If you're just tuning in for the first time you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com And of course you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com
1: In today's episode we will talk about what we've been eating, break down this week's news, and then conclude by asking the question Is direct action for animals terrorism?
0: Hmm. I'm surprised we haven't really tackled this one on the show up to this point, Paul.
1: Me too, Andy. But here we go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what happens. But before we get into the show, a couple of announcements. Of course, we have our next live podcast recording, which is going to be at the Compassion Fest Holiday Market. That's in Hamden, Connecticut. And the Compassion Vest Holiday Market goes all weekend, December 8th through the 10th. Compassion Co., my company, will be there December 8th and 9th. And on the 9th at 5 p.m., we will be doing our live podcast recording. So it is free to attend. Come by, check out some awesome vegan vendors. Compassion Fest Holly Market—it's fun. They've definitely attracted even more food. Is like light on the food vendors last year, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Bunny Treats is going to be there, which is really exciting. Um, they make this cookie pie, which is delicious. A couple of other new food vendors added in. Ninth Square Caribbean Market's going to be there, so should be a fun time. Come by, get a plate of good food, pick up some holiday gifts if that's your thing, and then come see us talk in front of people and see how many <laughs> see how many times we say um that are <laughs> that are edited out of the podcast that you have yep. no idea of um and like um and like yes and um <laughs> of course we have our mailbag coming up we want your listener questions comments and concerns so we can respond to them live i'm doing air quotes on air send those in thebeardvegans at com. anything from the mundane to the super serious we want your questions send those in we always love to hear from you
1: already got a couple in i saw in the email so looking forward to that
0: yeah it's gonna be a good time so andy what have you been eating well, Paul, I went out to uh, a f- relatively new restaurant, I think around for maybe a year or so, in New York called Ja Ja Ja, which is more of an upscale Mexican eatery. Went there went there for my birthday dinner, Paul. Oh, happy birthday, Andy. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much.
1: Are, are you sure that's not pronounced ha ha ha?
0: I am 100% sure of that. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And so got a couple things there. My partner raved about the nachos there. And so we got those and they offered two different sizes and we went for the larger size. And I will say it was entirely too much food. (laughs) People can see a picture of this on our Instagram. And I don't even know if the picture really does it justice, but it's a mountain of nachos, but they were delicious. Um, my favorite thing was actually the street corn, and we ended out the meal with these churros, which were so delicious, and they came with, like, this coconut de leche kind of sauce to dip them in. But what was most exciting was that our, our server, Rachel, was a Beardo, Paul. Oh. Rachel was awesome, and hooked us up with these delicious jackfruit tacos that were amazing. So, definitely a solid experience. And, Paul, we also did the Asbury Park vegan pop-up pretty recently. We did. And uh, that was fun. A lot of the, the usual frienders were there. Gone Pie, fanciful Fox, et cetera, et cetera. But we met some beardos, So thank you to Alexis and Adele for coming out. Yeah. Paul, mm-hmm. you put anything delicious in that beautiful mouth of yours this past week?
1: Yes. So I was actually home for Thanksgiving week. And because of that, had some Thanksgiving themed dishes. So Andy, you might recall... On at, at our New Year's Eve party last year, we had the garden the garden turkey roast, and at that time it was the best thing that I've ever had in my life. And I I swore off the Tofurky roast, and I said the the Gardein roast is the way to go. I got it again. I got the individual ones this year or for this for this holiday quote holiday, and I was not I was not as impressed as I remember being. Maybe in my head I built it up too much, but. I didn't like it as much as I as I did before. So maybe it's the fact that I need to get the big one and not just the individual ones, but I don't know. I I, I was disappointed. But I did also have I went over some friends' house and had the field roast roast, the field roast turkey roast, and that was I think the same thing is going to happen to me this year where for the next, whatever the next holiday is, I'm going to be like, Oh, field roast roast. That's the way to go. And I'm going to get it and probably be disappointed because I've built it up in my head again, but it was kind of encapsulated in this real thin pastry, crispy pastry. And then the, the actual meat inside was similar to the Tofurky roast, which I, which I do still like that. So I don't know, it was kind of like the best of both worlds. It had the crispy outside and the meaty inside. So I think I might go with the Field Roast Roast, F-R-R. I feel like I'm saying ATM machine, the Field Roast Roast.
0: <laughs> I heard someone say, where's the ATM machine the other day? And I just shook my head.
1: <laughs> and then you stole their money.
0: Yes. So you had the the hazelnut in kraut, I believe, is the one. That's like the term for the being wrapped in the puff pastry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I... um. I like that in small doses.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've only had it once. so. But I also I also made, surprisingly, I made a few dishes that came out pretty good. I made this a nice <laughs> <Raw> cranberries. <tofu. laughs> I made a nice cranberry sauce, made some smashed potatoes. I actually made a decent pumpkin pie. So I, I ate pretty good. And it was from my own hand, which I think made it taste even better.
0: Your own Hulk hand?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's what I had.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly Thanksgiving is a bullshit holiday. But if you put some mashed potatoes and gravy in front of me, I'm gonna eat them, and I will enjoy <laughs> it. Well, that's it on the food front. You can find some pictures of all that delicious stuff over on the old Instagram. Let's get into some follow up before we hit up the news stories this week, uh, Paul. You found this over at Narn. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah. So, I, I, you know, we've we've discussed sexual harassment in the animal rights community. In previous episodes, uh, we had Carol Adams on and and kind of explain it in in like better than we could ever explain it if we took twenty hours to try and figure out how to explain it. But so we've we've talked about this kind of stuff in past episodes and NARN, which is the Northwestern Animal Rights Network, they put out uh, like a little a blog post about a month ago that touches on a lot of these. These same topics, and I think that they they put it, they they framed it really succinctly and and constructively. So I I just wanted to read the majority of what this blog post was, and and again, it's I'm considering it follow up because it's an issue that we've talked about before, but I just think that they they phrased everything really well. So I'm just going to read the majority of that. When the news of Harvey Weinstein's behavior became public, we on the NARN board were not surprised. While sexual violence can be committed or experienced by individuals of any gender, men in positions of power particularly seem conditioned to believe that they can do whatever they want to women and femmes and get away with it. Sexual harassment, intimidation, abuse, and rape are committed by men in positions of power everywhere, and men in power in animal activism are no exception." The animal rights movement, though filled with some of the most caring, compassionate people, is not immune to the effects of rape culture and misogyny. In fact, numerous men in positions of power within the animal rights movement have perpetuated sexual harassment and abuse on their fellow activists. Too often their victims are silenced through threats of legal action, bullying and or shame. The abuser's behavior is excused, disbelieved, or dismissed because of name recognition and or because these abusers are, quote, such good activists. It can be hard to get folks to talk about the sexual exploiters because it makes our movement look bad. What is truly bad for the movement, however, is the continued tolerance of abuse and abusers. Many women and femmes don't feel safe in our movement because, in lieu of accountability, abusers are often rewarded and survivors are rarely believed when they speak out. We have cultivated an atmosphere of fear, silence, and tolerance. Many of us find it difficult to believe that vegan animal rights activists can also be misogynists or perpetrators of sexual violence, but these things can and do happen. For far too long, this behavior has been tolerated and it has absolutely been damaging to our movement and the people in it. We understand that it can be difficult to know what to do when perpetrators and their defenders hold such positions of power, but thankfully more people are beginning to have these difficult conversations. Narn believes in the right of all beings to live free from harm, and that includes those who would be victims of sexual violence or harassment within the movement. And then it goes on and they give some resources on on, how to, on where or how to report these, these instances. And they also give a link to a survey that's the purpose of the survey is to assess the prevalence of these issues in our community. So those might be a few things to check out. And then it concludes with, if you're a man or someone who is masculine identifying in the animal rights movement, even, and especially if you see yourself as one of the quote, good guys who would never exploit women and fems, we encourage you to talk to other men in the movement about sexual violence and misogyny. Start conversations, hold each other accountable, interrupt sexism, speak up, believe women and use your privilege to examine your own behavior and to reduce and prevent harm to all beings. So we'll include the link to this. And like I said, there's a few resources there and there's that survey within the blog post. So if you are so inclined, go check out that link. And and again, I just wanted to include this because I thought it was it was a, a very well worded blog about this issue that we've talked about in the past. But this, again, is saying it a lot better than we ever could.
0: Yeah, definitely. And always a good thing to keep on the forefront of people's minds. So thank you for sharing that with us, Paul.
1: You're welcome. So with that being said, uh, let's move on into the news topics of the week. Andy, you found this first one.
0: Yeah, and now for something completely different, Paul. This is a post that I saw a lot of friends re reblog repost, and they reposted this thing directly from Ruffles, and we're, we're going to link to an article from the New York Post, which I know is sort of a garbage publication, but they had the most inflammatory headline over this whole thing, which kind of made me laugh, which says, Vegans wage war against Ruffles over Tofu Erky joke. <laughs> <laughs> and so this happened on Thanksgiving, so it's dated uh, November 24th, 2017. Yeah, I didn't even need to look for news. This one just kind of found me. I saw a lot of people that were really pissed off about this whole thing. But basically, Ruffles decided, Ruffles is a chip brand, a crisp brand for those in the UK, and they decided that they were going to make a little joke on Thanksgiving. You know how Ruffles has all these different flavors of chips and they made one that was called the, the Tofu Erky flavored one, which obviously is their version of... They're, they're walking around calling it a Tofurky, but it does... And on the cover, there's like a picture of what appears to be the garden roast that you mm-hmm. were talking about, Paul. Kind of not the Tofurky round one, but more of a oblong one. That's <laughs> the stuffing in the middle. It is you know sliced and it is it says, Tofu Erky, 100% turkey-less. And, and I was like oh, that's actually really funny that they're making a Tofurky-flavored chip, even if it's a joke, like, this would be fun. And then I noticed that next to it, it said, limited time, never.
1: <laughs> and then
0: <laughs> and then at the bottom, it said, there's a reason Tofu Erky's are never pardoned. So basically, it's Ruffles making this joke saying Tofurky's and, and their counterparts are disgusting, and why would we ever make a chip like that? So they're taking a dig at vegan food, uh, and and Paul let me tell you the vegans <laughs> took this personally took this yeah, oh yeah very personally so in 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 the link that we're going to send you from the from the New York Post you can check out there's there's a whole slew of tweets my favorite of which says go to fuck yourself ruffles <laughs> <laughs> Paul this is almost something that would qualify for another what's the deal with vegan segment because mm-hmm. I was like ah, I don't really know if the response to this was proportionate to the offense that was committed <laughs> If you look on the comment page for for this for the Ruffles post And I know these comments are popping up first because a lot of these people are friends of mine or, like, friends of friends, and that's how the whole algorithm works. But it's just, like, dozens if not hundreds of comments of people saying, I am boycotting Ruffles now, and I will (laughs) never purchase your chips ever again. Way to screw over a lot of potential customers and all these things. And, and like, uh, uh, a lot of people saying you're making a joke out of animal cruelty and all these things. And... I, I, to me, like, I was like, this is in poor taste. Like they could have just made the joke in the other direction, but I don't know, Paul, when, what was your impression? Were you horribly offended when you saw this post? Well, I,
1: like you, Andy, I did see a few people repost this and like with outrage reposting it. And I'm going to be honest, it took me like a minute or two to figure out what the offensive thing about it was like i kept seeing people post like this is so offensive and i'm boycotting ruffles it took me a little bit to figure out what the actual joke was like i it's it's which i guess is maybe a dig at ruffles that they should if they're gonna try comedy it should be a little more obvious what their comedy is or maybe that's a dig at myself because i was not able to to pick up the comedic effect of what they were trying to get across. But when I finally did realize it, that it's just, uh, to me, it was just kind of saying Tofurky is not desirable because it maybe doesn't taste good. I wasn't super offended by that. I mean, I, I think that people say much worse things about veganism than that. And I don't know. I, I, I was not super duper offended by this. I didn't think it was, uh, like like I get when why people are saying, oh, it's making it's it's making light of like animal abuse, but it's it's kind of one more degree of separation away from that, like they're not directly talking about animals, they're talking about the product that we eat instead of animals, so it's not like i I would not agree with the notion that it's making light of of animal suffering, even though I I get why people are saying that. So I feel like it's far enough removed. It's just, it's poking fun at one particular product. I mean, people, non-vegans say that tofu tastes bad or tastes bland or tastes like nothing, whatever. People say that all the time. And, you know, I think I don't, I I don't know. I, I personally didn't take a lot of offense to this.
0: The thing that's kind of weird to me is that they're a brand that makes their money off of selling potatoes you know, so they're like a brand that, in many ways is on like the accidentally vegan lists and is something that vegans do potentially like, so it is it is I think it's a weird move on their part, but I don't necessarily think it's the thing like if i I think that if I was a non vegan and I saw that joke and then I looked at the comment and I saw vegans being so horribly upset over it, it would make <laughs> me think that as a group, we are pretty unreasonable,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Like I'm not gonna say it doesn't suck. You know, like obviously we want companies like Ruffles to normalize veganism and embrace vegan options, but it almost feels like they probably got what they wanted out of it. Like they got a bunch of attention, they got a bunch of vegans pissed off, and you know, to most of the population, vegans are a joke. So it's just sort of proof to a lot of the people that have the image that vegans are these irrational, just so upset over everything people. And they go see people like Ruffles making a joke about how bad Tofurkeys are and people are just losing their minds in the comments. And I feel like it's just not a good look for us.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I don't think we can necessarily quantify It's There's not like a we can't quantify how how much in poor taste a joke is. But I do feel like they could have made much worse or much worse jokes have been made about like animal suffering and much worse jokes could be made than poking fun at the taste of tofurkey.
0: Yeah. So I don't know. I, I feel like when we get super mad about everything all the time, it, it lessens the impact when we find something that we can actually have a really good effect on. Cause like, what is, what is the effect of our anger on this? They remove a Facebook post that people are going to forget about in three days anyway. Yeah, so that's just me. Write in, tell me why. Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> Beardvegans at gmail.com. But to me, it felt like we were getting our feathers ruffled. Like, like it felt like Ruffles was trolling us, and they just did it so well, and everyone just took the bait.
1: Yeah, and like, like I mean, like you were kind of saying, it's it's no skin off their back because much of the the majority of the population is not the majority of their con- their consumers are not going to be offended by this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to be fair, there was a few comments from people that were saying I'm not vegan, but this is silly to make fun of vegans, which which I get, but again, the joke to me isn't making fun of vegans, it's making fun of a specific product. You know, again, poor taste, I love Tofergy, but it it just to me it's kinda one of those things where it's like, Oh, ruffles you kinda messed up there, but who I don't really care. I'm not gonna spend my time losing sleep over this.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And anyway, we've certainly dedicated plenty of time talking about it, so let's <laughs> let's move on into this next news story. What do you got for us, Paul?
1: So this is something that I saw a few different outlets posting about. Veg News posted about it, uh, a couple non-vegan related websites posted about it. It's actually from the USDA, so you can check it out at ers.usda.gov. I'll include the link and it's it it's a bunch of data that's all about dairy consumption in the United States. And, and, and in this link, you can find a bunch of different different Excel spreadsheet pages kind of giving the different amounts of dairy consumption. And, and some of them are super, super sp- specific. The one that I'm going to look over or talk about is a little bit more vague. It's just saying how many pounds per person of these different dairy products have people been consuming. in, And, and then it, it gives you from now 1975 all the way to 2016 so there's quite a bit of data here and so i'm looking at the one that's titled dairy products per capita consumption in the united states annual and the reason that a lot of the reason that many sites have been posting about it is because the consumption of milk fluid milk from 2000 to 2016. In 2000, it was 197 pounds per person. In 2016, it was only 154 pounds per person, and that is a a roughly 22% decrease. So a lot of outlets have been saying dairy is going down, uh, milk consumption is going down, and This kind of goes along with some of the articles we've been talking about the last few weeks about how all these new, there's these new products, there's all these new non-dairy milks. And then I think it was last week we talked about the the ice creams and the whipped creams and there's all these non-dairy products that are coming in and maybe replacing or maybe just giving other options instead of the traditional dairy, cow's dairy milk. Most of the articles I saw have been touting this as a victory. I was... A little disheartened, though, when I'm looking at the actual data to find that in the majority of the other categories. So there's fluid milk. That's what we've been just talking about. But then it also goes through cheeses and yogurt and ice cream products and dry milk and all these other things. And in most of the other categories between 2000 and 2016, they actually went up. Now, I will preface this by saying the amount of pounds per person consumed in all of these other products is nowhere near milk. So again, I said, for instance, in 2000, the year 2000 people consumed on average, 197 pounds per person. Then when we go to yogurt, they were only consuming 6.5 pounds per person. However, in 2016, people were consuming 13.7 pounds per person of yogurt, which is actually an 111% increase. So, Again, it's only increasing about six or seven pounds per person versus the milk decrease, which is decreasing almost 40 pounds per per person, over 40 pounds per person. So, like, those numbers are more drastic, but it's like yogurt consumption has more than doubled between 2000 and 2016, and that is alarming, and... Uh, for instance, butter also increased by 27%. Now, ice cream went down, which I thought was was interesting. And maybe that's because of the, the prevalence of these non-dairy ice creams. Although, it actually increased very slightly between 2015 and 2016. Between 12.9 pounds per person and 13.1 pounds per person. But... Overall, it's been a decrease between 2000 and 2016. I don't know if people are just eating less ice cream, but
0: the horror, the... <laughs> Paul. I do have a question for you, and yes. you you may not have an answer for me. Probably not. Does this chart, when it says that like cheese and milk, and you're like the cheese is going down? Wait, did you say the cheese is going up a little bit?
1: The cheese went up a little bit, yeah. Except for <laughs> cottage cheese, went down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go figure. So cheese is going up and is it measuring pounds of cheese or pounds of milk used to make cheese because it makes it's about 10 pounds of milk to make 1 pound of cheese
1: you know andy i do not know that i would guess i would guess this is the the pounds of cheese that they're eating
0: yeah so i'm wondering if the math works out where it does actually it is a wash in terms of the like the decrease in dairy or i don't know why the term liquid milk seems so gross to me but the, the <laughs> fluid decrease milk. fluid milk fluid milk ugh. the decrease in fluid milk versus the increase in cheese i don't know just me musing
1: yeah I, I, again it's it's well actually i can tell you i can tell you this cuz in the on the far right column it actually just totals everything up and it's all all products, the the combined weight of all the products. In 2000, it was 591 pounds per person. In 2016, it was 646 pounds per person, which is actually a 9% increase. So between 2000 and 2016, there's actually been a 9% increase of all milk products combined, which is not good.
0: (laughs) Not good at all.
1: It's not good. And if, Andy, if we talk about what you were just talking about and if, in fact, one pound, for instance, of cheese increase actually means 10 pounds increase of, of milk, then it would be even worse when we think about it. Because if it's if it's an increase, because if the increase per person in pounds comes from, not from milk, but from these other products that actually take more milk, then it might even be worse than we think about, which is a bummer.
0: Yeah. And I... I never know what to believe when when we hear these numbers, like dairy's going down, it's going up. It's really playing with my hearts, Paul.
1: I know. So this is this is my analysis of this data. Obviously, feel free to look at this. You can scroll through these Excel sheets. A lot of them are pages and pages long, but this one, the per capita consumption of dairy products, that one is, is a little more manageable to take a look at. It breaks it down. It's pretty well organized. So if you want to take a look at it, and maybe I did some math wrong maybe i i'm wrong for some reason uh you know feel free to to email us in and and tell me why i'm wrong i hope that i'm wrong because i hate to be the person that looks at all these articles saying look at how well we're doing and look at dairy consumption is going down and i hate to be the person that's like "Ah, excuse me it's actually going up but (laughs) if i did something wrong definitely email in otherwise sorry to be the bearer of bad news
0: what about what about the milk glut paul (laughs)
1: and this is this is something that when i was kind of looking at some of these articles about the decrease or increase in dairy consumption i just happened to find this other one and this is from all the way back in february of this year so it's a little bit of an older article andy i don't know how this one slipped past us uh, as as i am a ripple connoisseur a connoisseur of the pea milk product ripple this this article I found, I don't think we even need to go into it that much, but it's 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 called Ripple Not Milk campaign brands almond milk a sham and tackles dairy over saturated fat, sugar and sustainability. And the essence of this article it says pea protein-fueled brand Ripple has weighed into plant-based milk debate with a provocative new media campaign that challenges the nutritional and environmental credentials of dairy milk, but also brands almond milk a sham and argues that when it comes to protein content, coconut and cashew milk are even worse. So I was not aware, Andy, that Ripple was taking jabs at other vegan non-dairy milks, which is kind of a bummer.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. I know Ripple is so near and dear to your heart. It is.
1: Should I boycott it
0: now? <laughs> At least write an angry Facebook post.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would say, not good Ripple. Not good. I, I I feel like, I feel like, even though we've talked about the increase in almond milk and soy milk and coconut milk and all these other milks, which I think is phenomenal, I I I still feel like it. that increase pales in comparison to the amount of milk that's still consumed Mm -hmm. and that amount is 154 pounds per person so i feel like ripple go ahead take jabs at dairy milk but like i i I don't know i just feel like you're 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 pushing down when you're pushing down the other non-dairy milks it's like you're pushing down such a small percentage of what people are probably drinking anyways, unless yeah. you're fighting specifically for the vegans. And then in that case, I would say, you know, expand your, you know, expand your marketing, because if it's not a good business marketing, if if you have the potential to hit a, a whole millions and millions of people, but you're focusing only on competing against for the 2%, the one or 2% of People that are vegan in the United States or wherever Ripple is offered. But yeah, so I don't know. I thought that that was kind of a strange move by them, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, it is is weird because obviously, as we've discussed on the show before, tons of people who drink almond milk, cashew milk, coconut milk are not vegans. They just switched over because they like the taste. They think it's healthier, but potentially there's, it's more sustainable. Again, I'm not sure exactly how much that weighs on people's minds. So I get that they might just be appealing to that crowd, but like the ethical vegan crowd is going to see that advertisement and be like, why are you shooting down this whole category of food when you know you're you're sh- you're fighting for this weird piece of market share when you could just be going after the people that drink fluid dairy milk instead? The the yeah the campaign. I'm just gonna actually read what their little campaign said or a part of it because it says to sort of frame it. They're talking about how the dairy industry was really upset that. Almond milk can call itself milk. It was during that whole debacle, which I believe we talked about many, many Mm -hmm. months ago. And they said, Dear Dairy, I can understand why you're upset. Almond milk is a sham. Only one gram of protein and less than a handful of almonds in an entire bottle? That's not milk cashew and coconut milk are even worse. They don't have any protein. <laughs> yeah, so so it's like they're 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 almost siding with dairy in that regard yeah. to be like, yeah, you shouldn't be able to call that stuff milk. And then they go on to say, "But you want to define milk as a lacteal secretion from a cow? Really? Ew. Hey mom, will you pour me a cold glass of lacteal secretion?" Come on, we can do better than that. So I so I mean they yeah, the jabs that they take at at milk at cow's milk if i feel like they could do that without trying to talk crap on the other people in their food category
1: maybe they're trying to pull some some of that re- reducetarian nonsense getting people on getting the non-vegans on their side first by making fun of vegan stuff
0: yeah i mean can, <laughs> honestly it seems like it
1: they can team up with ruffles
0: <laughs> there you go so yeah I don't know that's a bummer move bummer move, I think, but it clearly doesn 't seem to have really hindered the other non dairy alternatives from gaining market share as we 've seen, which is good, yeah,
1: so I think that 's all we got to say about Ripple.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: so Andy, you did a bunch more research than I did on this next topic, so i 'm going to let you uh take the reins on this one,
0: yeah, I saw a lot of headlines going around that were stating something that was really kind of shocking to me. And that was around, like, November 16th of 2017 or so. And we're going to include a link to one of those articles from the 16th. This one is from farminguk.com. And it says, MPs vote to reject inclusion of animal sentience in withdrawal bill. And it, and basically, all these headlines came out that were saying that the the MP, and this is in the UK, voted that animals are no longer sentient. And I was thinking, wow, this, is, this could be, like, a full show topic. This is really interesting. And then I... Kind of research, what actually happened, what was actually going on, and it 's not quite as simple as that, but a lot of a lot of advocates did seize on this opportunity to essentially paint this specific party as being super anti animal and there are so many complex mechanisms with the whole Brexit thing going on, and we are from the U.S., so this isn't something that's like injected into our daily lives. So excuse our rather surface interpretation and understanding of these issues. But I did find an article a little that was published a little bit later. This one actually came out November twenty fourth at the Independent, and it said. Animal sentience, what's really going on with the controversial Brexit amendment? And so, I'm just going to read a little bit from the article, then we'll talk about it. It says, the issue arose after a vote last week as part of the process of bringing EU legislation into UK law. Part of that process included a vote that, if passed, would have officially said that the UK recognizes animals can be sentient. The amendment didn't pass, and it's from that event that the confusion and disputation of this event emerged. So, basically, what is happening here is Brexit, essentially, it's Britain exiting from the European Union, so Britain exit Brexit, and... What that means oh. <laughs> <laughs> just just, it's me. not just a fancy new word for breakfast, Paul. It, <laughs> it is uh, essentially – so What what is happening with that is that laws that were established by the European Union, the EU, a lot of them need to be transferred to UK laws because the EU laws were just there in place as being a part of the union, but now they're not a part of the union, and so they have to sort of establish their own laws. And basically what they're doing is, for the most part, just – transferring over a bunch of EU laws into UK laws. And so that includes the Lisbon Treaty, which is the specific recognition that animals are sentient, and that's part of Article 13 of Title 2 for those who are keeping track And because that wording was transferred to UK law as part of being in the EU, the British government also has to act in keeping with that legislation until Brexit happens. So they were voting on transferring these these laws over, these amendments over, and they voted to not transfer this specific amendment over. And this is the amendment that said, yes, animals are sentient. And so obviously I think it's pretty easy to interpret that as saying, As them rejecting the sentience of animals. And I think it's obvious why a lot of people would be really upset about that. And I guess in my head, I I don't place too much stock in the government declaring, you know, something that's scientific or something that's morally right or wrong. I think that we as our individual selves determine those things. But obviously, there are a lot of animal welfare laws that get wrapped up in this stuff. And so it's kind of important because... Animal sentience or the declaration of the existence of animal sentience is the basis upon which so much animal protection laws are written, and it is something that can be used to help define further laws in the future. And again, we don't expect there's going to be laws that make the world go vegan or anything, but... As much as, Paul, you or I are not necessarily on we-need-to-make-bigger-cages team, but I do think that we should be against things that erode the current protections that are you know, available at this moment for animals. And it seems like if they remove something saying the animals are sentient, that does leave the door open. It could create a loophole for the further eroding of the very minimal protections that animals do already have. So all of this happened. All of these articles came out that were saying... That the government is essentially saying animals are not sentient anymore. And, and I think that this is something that even non-vegans were very upset about because obviously there's a lot of dog and cat people. And I think that in theory a lot of people are in favor of animal welfare laws. So this is something that riled up a whole lot of people. And so then there was this this counterattack that happened from those that refused to to vote in this specific amendment, and they flooded social media, and they were calling this fake news, and they were saying that it's not true, that they really care about animals, and they were saying that uh, animal sentience is already acknowledged under existing UK animal welfare laws, which is, in fact, not true. Uh Uh-oh. And also a lot of the laws that were already established in the u k basically had to do with like dogs and cats, and not necessarily those that were raised and slaughtered for food so but they said that they rejected a faulty amendment not because they disagreed with the the principle that was being espoused, but they didn't like the wording of certain things uh but it's still i still i think it's troublesome but but this article puts it pretty simply, which says. The MPs did not vote that animals are not sentient creatures, but they didn't also vote for a law that would have recognized them as such. So essentially the law isn't saying they are not sentient, but it's a failure to recognize them as sentient. Does that that make sense, Paul?
1: Yeah, but I don't know. I I feel like that's kind of...
0: It's kind of a double negative.
1: if If there's not a law that recognizes them, then they would not be able to get the protection from like, they would not be able to get any legal protection. So in terms of like legally, isn't there, isn't the fact that there's not a law recognizing them as sentient, basically legally the same as having a law that recognizes them as not sentient. Because it's like, if this was ever argued, you could just be like, no, they're not sentient and there's no law that says they are. So that stands right.
0: Uh, I am no lawyer, Paul. But You're not? I know. Surprise. But to me, it seems like someone could easily argue that loophole should there be, whether, whether it is systemic in terms of raising animals in agriculture or, say, perhaps someone wants to hurt their companion animal. Now, of course, as I mentioned, there are laws on the books about companion animals, but I think that not having this specific clause, this specific amendment, does leave the door open for some horrible things to happen, and I think about in terms of cases we've covered in the u s before um the Stephen wise and the non human rights project and how they're trying to get personhood for certain individual animals, starting with like chimpanzees, for instance, mm-hmm. I would imagine that things of this nature are sort of the the very 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 basic foundation for them to work on things like this,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I want to go back to what I said before and amend it, if you will, and maybe I'm going to
0: vote down your amendment, Paul,
1: <laughs> and maybe say, like, yeah, you could. You, so I'm going to take back what I said about it, it being legally the same if they don't acknowledge it as it's saying that they are not sentient. I'm going to take that back and rather replace it with like you could argue for since there's no law that specifies it, you could argue you could legally try to make an argument for both cases, but I would imagine that it's going to be harder. Like you were saying, if you were trying to get an animal related law in place, the fact that it doesn't exist, it's going to be harder to get that law passed or that amendment passed or whatever it is that you're trying to push for. So, and I do think that that's a very negative thing for animal welfare and animal rights in general. Like I do think that, I I do think that the by them saying, like, by them saying that just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean that we're saying that they're not sentient. I feel like that's them trying to cover up the fact that they know that it's going to be much harder for any animal, any animal right or law to get passed now that they don't have that in place. Like they, I think they know that, and they're just trying to cover themselves.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that even even though like currently in my head it's hard for me to envision a world in which the government mandates you know veganism or outlaws animal slaughter or whatever it might be, but I think that this is for instance perhaps the first step in that world, you know. And, yeah. And so to remove it is going to be a, a negative thing. Yeah. So this yeah. this is an instance in which I feel like yes, this breakout the the pitchforks and the flaming torches i think this is perhaps an issue that would be really important for the for the the constituents for the population to be really upset about and contact the representatives and and campaign to make sure that something like this does get included again i understand that this isn't making the world vegan but i do think it's an important piece of the puzzle
1: do you think that the ruffles and uh and this have uh is there a conspiracy going on
0: a a cowspiracy perhaps
1: (laughs) so do you think that people should be doing something about this like obviously in the u.s we would have less uh credibility to do something about it but do you think that people should be doing things about this specific issue
0: yeah all right, <laughs> moving <it> on. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll leave that there. We would love to hear from our UK listeners on their perspective on this whole thing and perhaps send us some suggestions about what people can actually do about this specific instance. So you can do that, beardvegans at com, of course. With that, Paul, I think it's time to move on into our main discussion of the week. This is something that you were working on, so let's hear it. There's been a couple recent
1: articles I've seen related to this, and we'll be discussing those. One from at at the point of this recording, just a, like a couple weeks ago, and then another one from September, so pretty recent. But it is something, like you said at the top of the show, Andy, that I'm surprised we haven't discussed up to this point. And just it's it's surrounding the idea that direct action for animals or animal liberation is considered terrorism by the United States government. And I just wanted to give a couple stories related to that, talk about how the the government f- sees these sorts of actions and some of their exact wording about it, and then maybe talk about what the implications are for not just this form of activism, but for all animal activism and maybe what we should do because of those inf- implications or what we can do because of those implications and how we can maybe change the perspective. So I threw a lot of stuff at you just now, Andy, but we're going to take it one piece at a time. The first article that that popped up, it's from newsweek.com. This came back and came out in September about a month ago, and it was right after the Las Vegas the acts, I would consider them the acts of terror uh, that ended up with 58 people being killed at the country music concert in Las Vegas. And it came just a couple weeks after that. And this article references that and it's almost uh, like a kind of a response to how that was seen by people or the government or the FBI. So this one is called, In America, Rescuing a Piglet Makes You a Terrorist, But Shooting Up a Concert Doesn't. What is terrorism? According to the FBI, animal activists who stole two piglets from a farm were terrorists. As of now, Steven Paddock, who killed 58 people at a country music concert in Las Vegas two weeks ago, has not been labeled a terrorist by the Federal Security Organization. In a viral story posted on The Intercept, journalist Glenn Greenwald details an account of federal agents investigating animal activists and scouring farm animal sanctuaries to find two missing piglets that allegedly had been stolen from a farm. The FBI devoted such resources to finding these two piglets because their alleged theft and the capturing of undercover videos of the farm's conditions count as terrorism. Why is the piglet's theft classified as terrorism, but not the Las Vegas shooting? The distinction is rooted in the definition of the term. The legal definition of terrorism is the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property in order to coerce or intimidate a government or the civilian population in furtherance of political or social objectives. The U.S. is so concerned with animal rights extremism that there is a specific legislation for them, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, or the AETA, No other terrorism act targets a specific ideology. The law was created in 2006 in order to expand the scope of an investigation that led to the arrest of individuals based on their speeches and internet posts. In 2006, a man was sentenced to three years for conspiracy to commit crimes under AETA based on speeches he gave, forum posts, and participation in protests. The terrorism label does not mean the crimes of the animal rights activists are worse than the crimes of the Las Vegas shooter, but it does mean the FBI is able to do more thorough investigations of people with ideologies, including regarding animals. So there's a bit more to it, but that's all I'm going to read from that, that first article. And then I just wanted to quickly read this other article that details a different account just to give kind of two separate accounts. And this is from... Uh, The individual themselves so I think that this one is even a little bit more valuable and this one is just from a couple weeks ago November 15th and this one is called I released 2000 minks from a fur farm now I'm a convicted terrorist people usually laugh when I tell them I am a convicted terrorist. I try not to open with that. It seems a little bit forward. First, I explain how my friend Tyler and I entered a fur farm in the dead of night. I describe the unspeakable suffering we found there. I tell people how Tyler and I opened every single cage and released 2000 mink to save their lives. And once they have the context, I segue into the terrorism thing. Now that I've been out of prison for more than a year, I can be a bit more lighthearted about it. But the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals doesn't see the humor. Last Wednesday, the court upheld the constitutionality of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, the federal statute that put me away for three years and that my lawyers at the Center for Constitutional Rights have been trying to challenge for nearly a decade. The Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act is a piece of designer legislation written and paid for by the agriculture and pharmaceutical industries. It federalizes nonviolent property crime and punishes it as terrorism, but only when the perpetrators are motivated by the belief that animals deserve to live free from violence. The court explicitly stated that the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act did not apply to four Fresno, California teenagers who sneaked into a foster farms facility and bludgeoned 900 chickens to death with a golf club because, quote, they killed the chickens for no reason. Put succinctly, I am a terrorist not because of what I did, but because the government dislikes why I did it. The Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act achieved its intended outcome. When the distinguishing feature of a terrorist is simply an ethical concern for animals, such concerns become marginalized, and voicing them becomes dangerous. What remains is silence. Now I watch as the rhetoric honed and the precedents established against animal rights activists are expanded to cover an increasingly broad swath of dissent. In Donald Trump's America, states across the country are introducing legislation designed to bully and deter protesters. Some of these proposed laws include five-year prison sentences for protesters who block traffic. Lawmakers in Arizona seek to charge protest groups as organized criminals and seize their assets. In Oregon, a statue would automatically expel students who violate protest laws. Missouri wants to criminalize the use of costumes during protests, and following the horrors of Charlottesville, lawmakers in a half a dozen states have introduced legislation to indemnify drivers who run over protesters as if the drivers were the ones in need of protection. This is not how a free society operates. Our rights are meaningless if the government intimidates us out of using them. But as Wednesday's decision makes clear, the judiciary will not protect us from such abuse. The court has legitimized the government's use of the word terrorism to describe nearly any activity of which it disapproves, and emboldens lawmakers around the country who are beginning to do just that. It is evident that our leaders consider our speech and assembly a threat to their unencumbered exercise of power. Now more than ever, we must show them that they are right. So I like that one because it was, you know, written from the viewpoint of the person that that experienced this firsthand. I think that they had a little bit more powerful of a thing to say, not just about how it's not just affecting animal advocacy, but it's kind of seeping into all forms of protests, which is a scary notion but i guess my first question andy for you is do you kind of have any like do you do you know people who this has affected that you are able to talk about do you like what are your i guess your opening stances your viewpoints on these sorts of concerns on on the fact that this sort of action is labeled as terrorism i know this is a very broad question
0: yeah, you know, unfortunately Paul, I do actually know some people that this have been has been affected by. I've I've become friends with some people that have been in jail. Befriended them after the fact and a lot of these people do speak publicly about their experiences. Currently, I actually have some friends that are involved in the uh it's called the the j twenty protest it was the protest uh, at donald trump's on election day, and you know tens of thousands of people converged on washington d c to protest that, but the police sort of cordoned off about two hundred or so people and just like mass arrested them for no reason whatsoever and the assistant u s attorney is now seeking an indictment charge on more than two hundred of those people it was two hundred three people that were arrested of basically eight felonies each which is a punishable of up to 75 years in prison so i have some some friends that are right in the middle of that right now and so since you bring that up i'm gonna i'm gonna drop a link in our show notes people can sign a petition over at change.org to drop the charges against the the petition is drop the charges against trump's first political prisoners and so so this is something that is very real and i think that you asked a lot of questions and i'm gonna answer as best i can And you let me know what parts i've missed Okay. But but I do think that to to the points of um, Kevin's article, the one that you just read, that I, I think that attacking the animal rights people and like th- that crowd, it wasn't really mentioned, I guess, but sort of Earth Liberation people as well. I think that's usually the foot in the door to get certain legislation introduced and then expanded, and I think that it's one of those things where a lot of people don't really care about the animal rights people and what they're doing. And and the public sort of views those actions as extreme. And so it's easy to get things passed. And then that allows things like this to happen as well, where people are all of a sudden being arrested simply for protesting, not for engaging in anything that could even be close to considered violent action. So I guess, what else did you ask? Like what are my feelings in general on this whole thing?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I guess this this isn't the the original route I wanted to take with this discussion, but maybe this will be. A ju- I mean, this is just as an important discussion because what this what the Kevin's article kind of expands to is that this doesn't just affect animal protests; it affects all all forms of protest, and, and basically any dissent from the norm that the government is trying to put forward is is being increasingly punished with 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 increasing consequences and that is you know an a scary a scary scary thing do you think that because because for instance there was the the big animal rights marches just a few months ago at this point i would say maybe two months ago that were in like new york and and a, a bunch of a few different places around the world but as far as I know, I didn't hear about people kind of being arrested from that. I don't. Did you hear any anything like that, Andy?
0: I did not hear anything about that
1: because I, I think what, something that you had said j- just a second ago was that this might, this sort of, this stuff might be kind of it's it's focuses on the extreme vegan out ad- activists or the extreme earth activists because like you said they're going to be less sympathetic and then they kind of the, the general public might be less sympathetic to their causes and then they kind of expand those to just any sort of thing that the government doesn't want you to talk about or doesn't want you to protest against and it is interesting how like the protests against like you were just mentioning the protests against just a general protest against Donald Trump could have this mass could have these mass arrests, but something like the animal rights marches, I guess it doesn't seem like the government really cares to, to, to do anything about that, even though they do seem to care when people take more extreme actions for animal rights, like releasing all the minks.
0: Yeah. And you know, I, I would hesitate to use the word extreme from here on out and I think perhaps radical might be a more accurate mm-hmm. wording perhaps that's just an issue of semantics but things that many would con- consider to be more radical like actually liberating animals or perhaps burning down a testing facility or a logging facility or something of that mm-hmm. nature. Yeah, I don't I don't know if the government necessarily sees an animal rights march as like a big threat right now. Yeah. I, I think that it's still kind of in the eh, these puny activists. They're not really doing all that much by marketing in the streets. Personally, I, I you know I don't think we really talked about the march specifically. To me, it I wasn't I had mixed feelings on the whole thing in general. But as like as a form of effective advocacy.
1: But doesn't like doesn't I don't know I I think because and myself, dear listener, recently watched a movie that we will talk about in the future that was about earth advocacy. And from that movie, it seemed like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, even the, some of the protesters, like some of the, the quote, peaceful protests uh, uh, for like environmental issues would be met with extreme response by the police. But now it doesn't seem like that sort of stuff happens as much anymore maybe it's just maybe i I just don't know about it which is also possible
0: yeah i think they also learned that when they respond to peaceful protesters with such force it is really bad press for them but i think if they just arrest them and then try to repress them and and threaten them with decades of jail time i think that they've probably learned that that is actually a greater threat to most people yeah, you know, I think like in my mindset, if I if I was trying to get something accomplished, and I could go out there and I just had to get pepper sprayed for an afternoon, I'm, I'd say just obviously that's horrible. But I I see myself okay, I can get through this thing. But then if I think about, well, if I go out and protest and then I get seventy five years in jail, that would make me think twice about going out and doing something. There, you know, There's something to be said for martyrs and, and sort of people that are sort of this beacon of the cause and the oppression, the repression that this movement faces. But I also think I can get a lot more done not in jail. So I think that they're probably getting a lot smarter in terms of how they actually mess with those that are dissenting from popular opinion. That being said, obviously, we have seen many cases of people protesting that are treated very horribly as well. So...
1: Yeah, because that, that's what I was thinking, that it seems like in for, for other relevant causes that have been, I say relevant as in it's like th- that have been in the news lately and, and these sorts of things, it does seem like there's a more aggressive response to those. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess let's, but let's kind of bring it back maybe to our, our original topic at hand here. And you were asking me what my opinion on these types of actions are in general. Mm -hmm. part of me is almost like wary to ever express opinion on them because I'm like the government, are you listening to our podcast? (laughs) You know, but I think that it's hard for me. It's not my preferred mode of activism, but I think that it's hard for me to ever condemn someone that is willing to go and economically sabotage a company that's doing really horrible stuff or to actually liberate and rescue animals from a place of abuse. I, I think there's a lot to be said for Working to prevent the future, like future animals, from being put into that situation, i.e., vegan education. But I think that not everyone is suited for vegan education. Not everyone's suited for individual conversations, and maybe there are people that are more suited for, you know, these lone wolf economic sub- subterfuge kind of things going on. and And I think that it's an admirable thing.
1: Do you think it's fair to say that these sorts of actions are are, motiv- are motivated by? Like, I need to release, I need to help these animals now versus I want to help future animals.
0: Oh, for sure. And I I think that for, for many people, and I've certainly heard this opinion expressed, is that that type of direct action, direct liberation is the only true form of helping animals. And that, you know, sitting around and posting about cupcakes and all of these things isn't it's really just about our own egos and it's not really serving the animals and what helps the animals is going in and taking them from the place of abuse and delivering them to somewhere that is not going to abuse them. Um, You know, I I don't believe in that sort of more strict version of this is the only thing that we can do to help. But I I certainly understand that. I, I don't see how anyone could see videos of what happens to animals in a a lab where they're being tested upon or in an animal agriculture facility or a fur farm or whatever it might be and think, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do something that is going to in theory prevent less animals from getting put in that situation in the future. You know, I, I can totally see why someone would say that type of activism doesn't appeal to me and I need to go directly help an animal right now. Yeah. I, I get that perspective. 100%.
1: No, I totally do too. I guess I just, I'm more wonder cause on we, you know, we like to say that there's not, I should say, I should speak for myself. I shouldn't speak for Andy. You know, like I have the opinion that there's not necessarily one, there's not going to be one tactic that creates a vegan world. There's not going to be one tactic that makes everyone go vegan. And this is why when when some of these more single issue campaign uh, things happen like all the all the elephants get or circuses get banned or elephants get banned from the circus, it's like there's still good things that are happening, it's all kind of kind of working towards the same goal. obviously, there are some things that that we think are either less effective or maybe have some negative consequences. but I guess I just wonder how that how this these types of actions fit into that whole idea of there's not necessarily one way that we're going to achieve this goal and and there are different people working at different parts that are all helping to achieve this goal i guess i i in some ways i feel like they there's there's uh, almost certainly overlap between between those two those two ideologies i guess of animal advocacy, but I also think there are some, there are things that are so dissimilar about them that I worry that they might conflict with one another.
0: What, what do you feel like is the confliction there?
1: I guess that I wouldn't, I don't think that you would, someone would be able to, or groups of people would be able to liberate enough animals or on the other hand, that they would not be able to destroy the amount of businesses and property that they would need to for that, for those companies to just say, for all of them to just say, okay, we're, we're closing up shop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think as, as we saw in the the documentary that we're going to be discussing in a future episode, Sometimes it does work. Sometimes the damage, you know, when a facility is burned down and the insurance money isn't enough, and all that stuff, or, or perhaps the the owner of this facility is like, I just don't want to deal with this bullshit anymore. So I'm not gonna reopen my thing. It's just not worth the hassle. Sometime, sometimes, sometimes it, it does work. And you know, I've I've heard it said. I've seen I've seen one person who was convicted of of this and served time, and now speaks at like conferences and whatnot. Say. If, you know, all 100 people in this room got together with a friend and figured out a target and went and did their thing, like, we could end this pretty soon. But obviously, you know, not everyone's suited for that. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that particular assessment. I think that strategically employed, there's probably a lot that could be done. But ultimately, if there's a public that is continuing to want these things and someone's going to make money off of it they will continue to reopen in some form or another. So again, that's why I think that the advocacy side of things is as important. I don't want to say more important, but in my mind, The advocacy for like educating people about why they should go vegan is the thing that is like ultimately the biggest piece of the puzzle. Because if we have a population that is not supporting these industries, they don't exist anymore. And no matter how much someone's trying to economically sabotage them, you might close down one mom and pop thing or one smaller operation, but they're going to keep it's whack-a-mole. They're going to keep popping up if you don't quell the source of the funding, which is the general population.
1: And and I guess one of my other concerns is that, like, think about the the relatively small amount of people that are doing these sorts of actions. And again, like I, I, I cannot stress enough that I completely understand why these people are doing these things, and I'm not saying that they're they're wrong for doing these things in in any in any way. But I guess I also think that it's such a relatively small percentage of people that do these sorts of actions that, and, and I guess my point is look at the response of the government to this relatively incredibly small population of people that do these sorts of things. I I think that it would, if we then said like every animal advocate should do this sorts of things and, and the type of thing that you're saying, which is like everyone in this room should be doing this sorts of thing. If that, if these sorts of actions increased, I can only imagine the, the 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 scale of the response to these actions would also proportionally increase as well. Because it's already again, for the relatively small amount of people that are doing this, the response, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, is already such like a a, a gross over like I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. It's such like a grossly over response. Disproportionate
0: response.
1: Yeah. It's a disproportionate response. Thank you, Andy, to, to what people are actually doing. Like the, the, the amount of property that's being damaged or the amount of property that's being lost or the amount of animals that are being lost relative to the, the response that these people get, which is sometimes decades in, in jail. It's, it's already so bad that I would worry that if this became the preferred tactic of animal advocates, that response would just increase and and it would be horrible. It would be horrifying.
0: Yes. I mean, I agree with that, Paul. But do you think that that also potentially points to the fact that these types of actions are a very real threat? Like if they weren't really that big of a deal, would there be this big of a response? Like even if even if even if one small action doesn't necessarily have the biggest impact it's not you know industry ending but if if they don't crack down on it super hard then then people more people do feel empowered to do these things that that would have a really horrible effect and that the fact that they're not cracking down on people handing out leaflets points to the fact that the direct action is way more effective at harming these industries
1: I I obviously I I can't know I can't know what these people are thinking and and why they necessarily choose to uh take these very extreme forms of response but maybe Andy it's because like what 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 the people are doing is quote Illegal. And I mean, I don't know why I have to put that in quotes. It is illegal, which again, doesn't which doesn't necessarily mean it is right or wrong ethically, but it is illegal. And because it's illegal, the government can take action against it. And so the action that they are going to take against it, they're going to make it as extreme as possible because they know they can take action against this versus someone leafleting, which is not illegal. And therefore, I, I think it would probably not be in their best interest to take action against this because then people even non non-vegans would see that as like oh this is the, this is the government overstepping their boundaries they're prosecuting someone for not actually doing anything illegal and it would be a bad look for them which is which is why kind of the, the article that we just read goes into that I think it goes into that exact thing where it's like people are, are outraged because these these protests are being—protesters are being prosecuted at, for not actually really doing anything. And, and I think that's why there's so much outrage about this versus, like you had mentioned right at the top, Andy, it's like they're almost easy—like this is an easy target for the government because these people are doing something illegal and most people— like the general public is going to not necessarily empathize with what these people are doing. So it's almost like an easy target for the government to to enact this these extreme uh charges against them.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that we we see that played out in other instances where it seems like the government has tried to push the limits a little bit with the uh, that case with uh, Anita from Toronto Pig Save, right? Just mm-hmm. giving yeah. water to pigs at, in a transport truck and how there was a huge public outcry about that. And we even see that with certain instances of the ag gag laws, the agricultural gag laws that prevent people from filming inside of agricultural facilities or from the sidewalk, apparently, of an agricultural facility. If they're if they're documenting that, then that can be considered illegal in certain states now. And the first person that was prosecuted with that, pretty sure it was the first person, was just someone that was like filming from the sidewalk and they could happen to see into this facility and and the public was like, This is ridiculous. Like how could you possibly prosecute someone for that? So so I think you're you're definitely right in that regard. And in terms of it being an easy prosecution for them, it's like, yeah, people for whatever reason place a very high value on property and that reason could probably be capitalism I'm sure but people place a really high value of of property and you see that even in very you know liberally oriented marches where say a Starbucks window is smashed and people think that that's like the most horrible crime that's ever happened before and you know people place such high value on property and view property destruction as violence as this horrible thing that happens, and I, I reject that I don't think you can commit violence to a an inanimate object, necessarily, but I do think that you know destroying property can be used to intimidate people, which is what terrorism is, so I see why people it's like it's like a hard battle to fight to get the public on your side when you are burning down someone's livelihood or something like that
1: and I think a big part of it has to for, for animals specifically a big part of it is going to be getting the general the general's opinion that animals are not property like i think that's a, that would be a big in in terms of how this sort of activism could be effective is i think one of the big Barriers that they face for the in terms of getting the general public on their side is the fact that most people see animals as property and commodities and they don't see them as, you know, living, living beings. And so when something like this does happen, I think, like you said, Andy, people people's minds go right to capitalism and they think about, oh, well, this person lost so much money off of this and they don't think about the the lives that may have been affected or saved or or whatever because of it.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I'm I'm kind of blanking. I'm pretty sure it's the documentary Behind the Mask, which is all about the animal liberation front. And and they talk about in that one, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, someone out there, and hopefully we'll review this documentary at some point, Paul, but they talk about how in the beginning some of the first liberations that were done were received very well by the public because it was people storming you know, in in, in a testing facility and they're saving the puppies and things like that. And people Mm -hmm. viewed it very favorably. And then there was like sort of a smear campaign on all those things. And that's when there was like a changing of the tide of people no longer supporting those who were rescuing animals. Like how could someone be upset about someone rescuing animals? But then they start to use the word terrorist. They start to paint people as being these very extreme people that, that want to stop you from eating meat and all of these things. And that, that is where the public opinion started to shift.
1: And and I don't know why Andy, I haven't <laughs> I don't know why I haven't thought about this because cause in my in my mind thinking about the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, the 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 way that I always thought about why it was implemented was so that the FBI could uh, take more resources in going after these people or prosecute them differently because they have this label of terrorist. But I I mean I think it also in terms of the general public's the general public's view, as soon as someone hears the word terrorist, they get a very specific image of like a, a bad person, and so if if the media and the government is constantly pushing out that these people that are doing these things for animals are terrorists, it's like automatically creating a bias for people, and it's it's automatically. Making it so that they are somehow they are different than you and and, and it's going to be a lot harder to to connect with their motives or to empathize with them because you don't want to be someone that sympathizes with a terrorist.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that that their use of terrorist has been really effective in making sure that people don't sympathize with them. Like t- Which is- terrorist is like the the boogeyman like language. Like we're fighting this war on terror and like, well, what is a war on terror? It's like, that's not a, that's not a, th- it's an, you know,
1: it's like the the communism of today.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, it, you know, obviously legitimate terrorism is not good. <laughs> obviously we're, yeah, not, we're yeah. not saying that, but it's a word that's been co-opted to describe people that don't want animals to be harmed or don't want the earth to be destroyed. And it's it's definitely been used very effectively.
1: And I had a... Uh, I wanted to talk to you, Andy, about specifically in the article written by Kevin, they talk about how this. it was this quote, I'm a terrorist not because of what I did, but because the government dislikes why I did it. And from the example that that Kevin gives, which is he's considered a terrorist, but the people that killed the 900 chickens just for no reason is not considered terrorist. Like when he gives that example, certainly I agree that that is, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd that, and and in general, it's absurd that someone would be considered a terrorist solely because of their, their ideology that they believe animals should not be killed and eaten. But I don't know. I guess I, I, I have not formulated this question very well in my head, but how do we combat this? Like, do we need to change the definition of terrorism? Do we need to just work to get the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act done away with? I, I guess, like, how do we get it so that animal activists are not considered terrorists? Or does it does it matter legally as long as we change the public's opinion and we get the the public to say, no, this is literally ridiculous? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I, I think, well, I think obviously getting rid of the AETA would be a good thing. In my head, it's really hard to imagine how that would happen because, as Kevin points out in his article, this is like designer legislation. This is stuff that was written by these industries. And so that means there is a ton of money behind it. And with all the money in politics, it's hard to imagine enough legislators would stand up against that when it would be against their best interest to do so. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess you're right. The second piece of that puzzle would be really changing public opinion on those things. And that and to me that's hard. I mean it, like one, I think it it would mean for vegan advocates to support the actions of those that do take these more radical measures and to, to like publicly support those things. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel like when I first joined the movement, there was a lot more of a support the ALF vibe to things. And yeah. maybe it's just because I've become friends with a lot more people that are sort of working within the nonprofit world. But to me, it's not something that I see people supporting as much. And, and those that do support it sort of have a specific, very, uh, yeah, I guess, punk kind of hardcore aesthetic to them. And, and it's not, it's not like something that it's something that's within a certain subculture kind of lauded, but it's not something that within like a lot of the mainstream movement is something that people really seem to outwardly support you know it's not like someone is like oh i'm i'm hassing out leaflets today and also i do think it's cool when someone does direct action for animals so it's like it's hard i feel like the the, the mainstream movement views those things as you were saying as extreme and therefore they want to they want to separate themselves from it they feel like they're not going to get the sympathies of the general public if they do support these actions that are being considered terrorist actions so yeah, I don't know which who's going to like step out on a limb and support these things. I mean, you know, for all for all of the reasons that we've listed on a billion episodes, Paul, we were not fans of PETA, but they used to be very in support of these things. And now they just have kind of a statement on their website that's like, we won't condemn people that take action for animals. But before they used to cover the legal fees of people that were doing this stuff and And Hmm. and they've, they've kind of scaled back on these things as well, at least publicly, as far as I know. So it it seems like everyone's trying to distance themselves from these people, the people that are taking these actions. So I don't know how to change that, the tide of, of public opinion in that regard. If, if those who are the closest to the movement that are, are not willing to back these people up, then how do we get the general public on board?
1: I do think that, I will say, so this, I we should just stop teasing us. The movie that we keep referencing is If a Tree Falls, which is a, it's a documentary about the ELF, basically, and one person in particular that's that's in the midst of being prosecuted for being an ELF member. And th- that movie, I, I do believe, again, Andy and I both have biased perspectives, but I do believe that it has the, the potential of Getting the general public or at least some people in the general public to have a better understanding of the motives behind people that choose to do these sorts of actions and how ridiculous it is that they are considered terrorists. So I think uh, movies like that have the potential like I think that that is a good tool to get people more understanding and empathetic towards uh, towards these sorts of actions. So I think that's a that's one way.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like we need a a what the health of direct action.
1: Yeah, so I I had uh, I, I had pulled another interesting I found another interesting article, just to get the perspective of how the the government kind of or how the FBI how they see these sorts of actions and this is from archives.fbi.gov and we'll include the links to this <laughs> if if you want to click on it and immediately be put on some sort of watch list but um this is from this is from 2008 so this is older and I will say this at at the at the top of all these archive I went through a few of these these archived websites or posts it does say like this is an archive post and it's not necessarily the current views of how the FBI feels. But I do still think it's interesting to talk about Uh, this. This post was called putting intel to work against ELF and ALF terrorists. So the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front. And uh, let me just read that. In early 2006, eco-terrorist Eric McDavid and two associates met in a secluded cabin in Dutch Flat, California to discuss making improvised explosive devices and to choose targets to bomb. Soon after, they began casing and targeting facilities and buying supplies to make bombs. But before they started mixing the ingredients, we swooped in and arrested them. How did we know what McDavid was up to? How were we able to prevent attacks that could have caused thousands or millions of dollars in property damage and possibly harm people? In a word, intelligence. Our intelligence. (laughs) We're so smart. (laughs) Our intelligence, which included the use of an FBI source who was actually with McDavid and his associates inside that California cabin, allowed us to piece together the entire plot ahead of time. Since 9-11, we have greatly strengthened our ability to identify, collect, analyze, and share intelligence across all of our national security and criminal priorities, and that has carried over into our investigation of violence and terror committed in the name of the environment as well as of animal rights. Together, eco-terrorists and animal rights extremists are one of the most serious domestic terrorism threats in the U.S. today, for several good reasons. The sheer volume of their crimes, over 2,000 since 1979. The huge economic impact, losses of more than $110 million since 1979. The wide range of victims, from international corporations to lumber companies to animal testing facilities to genetic research firms and their increasingly violent rhetoric and tactics. One recent communique sent to a California product testing company said, you might be able to protect your buildings, but you cannot protect the homes of every employee. So what are we doing to counter the threat? For one, we've mapped our environmental and animal rights extremism cases in order to give our investigators around the country and our executive management a big picture look at what's happening and where. We're also analyzing information from financial records, phone records, and and mail. And working to increase our human source reporting. And we're sharing intelligence with our partners through the Joint Terrorism Task Forces and other investigative endeavors. Sharing info with our partners, particularly at the local level, is crucial because many times they're the first ones at the crime scene. We're also taking advantage of the 2006 revision to the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which toughened penalties, created additional protections for people, the original law only covered property damage, and included secondary targets, oftentimes companies that do business with primary targets are themselves targeted. So whatever happened to Eric McDavid? In May, he was sentenced to nearly 20 years in federal prison. So that's the end of that article. And I I hate how they're like that kind of smug, like, yeah, we threw this person in jail for 20 (laughs) years. And, And I'll include a link to this. But I Googled. I was like, I wonder what's going on with Eric McDavid right now. And he was actually freed 10 years after being sentenced when it was revealed that the FBI had withheld evidence from his trial, from his original trial and from some of these websites I kind of got the the picture that he was almost lured into this bomb plot by an like an undercover FBI agent and some people and this is this seems like it was some of the information that was withheld from the original trial was that there was someone on the inside that was from what from what it seemed like trying to kind of egg him on into into planning this sorts of things. Not vegan. So it was <laughs> <laughs> and and I I think it was. You know, I I believe that that's what entrapment is. Is that correct, Andy?
0: I believe so, Paul. It seems like Like, it.
1: So it was almost like this person, they, 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 and and they had like a romantic involvement with Eric McDavid. So there was like that at play too, and it seemed like she kind of influenced him to to plan these attacks. And you know, you can't you can't then. Uh, throw someone in jail for for an idea that you implanted in them, uh, or maybe you can for ten years. But so luckily, thankfully, he was released. Un- un- unluckily, it was I mean, un- un- terribly. It was ten years after being sentenced, which is which is awful. But I just wanted to read that because that's what the that's what the government put out in in two thousand and eight. And and I do definitely want to point out that you know it's it's the, the in in it the quote is. Eco-terrorists and animal rights extremists are one of the most serious domestic terrorism threats in the US today. But it it really the thing that they they list the main reason, you know, is is economic impact. And they say wide range of victims, but but they never, you know, they never list people being hurt or people being killed. And I think the fact that there are tens and tens of thousands of people dying every year in the United States from, from gun violence and from other, what I would consider maybe preventable causes, but you consider the most serious domestic threat to be one that just destroys property. And $110 million is no small amount, but $110 million over 30 years and talking about like, it's not always bigger companies, but some of them are, bigger companies it's not you know like that's that's not something that i would consider the most serious domestic threat to the united states
0: yeah i mean i think especially because for instance in the the alf's creed or in their sort of outline of because basically alf is a series of autonomous cells there's no main organization issuing statements and this is the action you're going to go take it's basically if you are someone that takes direct action for animals to either save them or to do economic sabotage, and you follow specific principles doing so, you can claim to be a part of the ALF. And one of which is that you take all, any, like any and all precautions to not harm any living being, human or animal. So, yeah, they they are considered terrorists, but they've never killed a person, they've never even harmed a person.
1: Yeah it 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 seems like it's sad, it's ridiculous that that the government, the FBI, is considering this the most serious threat. It's like when there are so many other legitimate threats going on, there are other groups of people that are literally killing, killing other U S citizens or just killing anybody. And, and this is what's considered the most serious threat.
0: Yeah. it's. I mean, I think about like anti-abortion extremists that, that have literally killed people and they're not considered as big of a target by the FBI. Or white supremacists. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, it's it's ridiculous, and it really just shows where the government's priority, where the FBI's priorities are, and how much funding can shape who they go after.
1: And I guess, I guess, in my mind, it's not. I, I, I guess, I wouldn't expect the government to not have these these sorts of things on their radar? Is that is that fair to say, do you think, Andy? I wouldn't expect them I wouldn't expect this to not be on their radar. But but the the extent that they've taken it seems grossly disproportional to the the quote crimes that are being committed.
0: I would certainly call it extreme, that's for sure.
1: Yes. So I I guess I don't know, Andy. You went over you went over those ALF guidelines, which which I think again it, it points to the fact that like these the, the people people that choose to do this they are not terrorists and should not be labeled as terrorists. And it's it's upsetting and infuriating that these measures that are being taken against them. But we have been talking about this for a little bit while now. Did you did you have any sort of conclusionary statements that you wanted to make?
0: It's a really complicated issue and one I think we'll probably delve into the future. I think there's a lot that goes into assessing whether a specific action is successful or not. And, you know, this is a debate we haven't even touched, but say someone releases Mink and then they you know, people are like, well, they're just going to get killed in the wild or they're going to die. And well, at least they had a chance at life and all of these things that I think are like super complicated. But, but I think in general, I think it is important for us to support those that are willing to take these actions.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, I think that's all. That's all that we're going to say about this for now. So yeah. definitely, definitely email us in the beard, vegans at com. Let us know. Let us know what your thoughts are. Let us know where you think we got it wrong. Let us know where you think we got it right. Let us know whatever other opinions there might be. But yeah, thebeardvegans at gmail.com. So Andy, what do you have? Do you have anything coming up?
0: I do. I do, Paul. Our, our next oh, I guess event, we have
1: something coming up. <laughs>
0: yeah, our next event, December 8th and 9th, uh, I'll be at the Compassion Fest Holiday Bazaar in Hamden, Connecticut. December 9th, Paul and I will both be there. And we're again doing our live podcast recording, 5 p.m. December 9th, free for all to attend. December 10th, I'll be at the Vegan Market in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, December 17th, Paul's going to be at the Philly Vegan Pop Flea at the Tattooed Mom in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. December 17th, the same day, I'll be at the Vegan Pop-Up in Morristown, New Jersey at the Laundromat Bar. And those are our final events for the year. If you want to get a picture of where I'm going to be in 2018, Uh, You can head over to compassionco.com. You'll find all the links, the dates, deets, and and info for the events I just announced, and also future events, uh, Arizona, California, Indianapolis, North Carolina, New Jersey. We've got everything all the way up through July is listed right now. So go check it out if you feel so inclined. Excellent. Yeah, Paul, I think that for all of the books I've ever purchased on this subject and articles that I've read, I, I'm like 100% sure I must be on one or more FBI watch lists. <laughs> and I, I don't know how easy it is to get on those lists, but I've I've read that in, all you have to do to qualify is to make a recording of yourself saying the following seven words.
1: We are The Breed of Beacons signing off. Can also be misogynous or perpetu or perpetuate <laughs> perpetrators. Oh, okay. Do that whole sentence
0: again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I keep wanting to say perpetuators.
0: Reinforce. Ah, I don't know. This is a weird point to make. Uh, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> this one's from farminguk.co.com.com. What shouldn't that be? Dot co. Whatever. And because that wording was transferred for you to, (laughs) (laughs) we should be against things that could potentially erode the current protections that are already, that's a dog. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Hold on. Dog's barking. The garage door's opening. It's going (laughs) to let that pass. Drink some water. Eh garage doors closing <laughs> i don't think that can get picked up but i'm sure someone's gonna like come in i'm like downstairs near the garage.
1: you recording a podcast in there
0: <laughs> my mom's like can i get a sticker
1: <laughs> <laughs> is, is ruffles owned by lays uh
0: probably i don't know
1: andy did you know that and it is by the way i just googled it did you know that in in england the company is not called lays it's called walkers
0: you know I don't know that I did not know that
1: But it's the same exact it's the same exact logo it just instead of the word lays it says walkers
0: riveting